Hello, and welcome to another episode of Some Random Thoughts. I am your host, Ryan Wilkowski. It's amazing to think that I'm rounding toward the end of this season, and I appreciate all of you who have listened and have supported this podcast. I appreciate you all engaging with me and really trying to you know, boost and support it. So thanks, and remember that... You can find me on social media, um, on Twitter and Instagram at Ryan Wilkowski. Today I want to talk about politics and government. And you might be thinking, well, Ryan, don't you know the old rule? You know, there are two things you should never talk about, which is religion and politics. Well, on religion, I've been talking about that pretty extensively over the past (laughs) four seasons. And so I've already broken that rule a long time ago. So I figured why not just break the other one? Look, I get it. Politics is a touchy subject and everyone's got very strong feelings about politics and everyone has some deep rooted investments in their beliefs and values when it comes to what they want to see their government function like, how they want to see politics function and what the role of politics is in the everyday life. So I'm just going to share some quick observations on politics and government just from my perspective and hopefully provide you all at least an opportunity to take a moment and think about what are your values, what are your beliefs when it comes to politics and government? How would you like to see government function? How would you like, what policies would you like to see enacted that you think would be for the betterment of of all people? I would love to hear your comments, so feel free to reach out to me on social media and feel free to reach out to me on my website, ryanwilkowski.com, and go to the contact form. Or you can go to ryanwilkowski.com and go to the podcast page, scroll down to the bottom where it says leave a message, and any comments that you leave might make it into future episodes. So for me, you know, politics has always been kind of a nerdy subject for me, and I've actually really enjoyed politics since I was a kid. And a lot of that is attributed to my dad. My dad is heavily invested in following politics and has been since I could remember. And, you know, even though my dad and I have very different political views, I think my love for politics, my love for really knowing what's going on in the country, what's really going on in politics on every level, whether it's federal, state, or local, and really understanding like how the government functions and works and what our role is when it comes to being a citizen of a country and being a part of everything that's going on 
my dad left a lot of those values and instilled a lot of those values in me. And those are values that I take seriously. I have heard time and time again, people claiming that they're quote unquote, not political or quote unquote, apolitical. I don't buy personally into the argument that someone can be non-political or apolitical. I think everybody has a politic. Everybody, I think, has an investment in politics, and everybody has an opinion or a value that they want instilled in their local, state, and federal forms of government. I don't buy into the argument that you can be completely disconnected from politics and still be a functioning member of society. If you're a functioning member of society, then politics affect you. The government affects you in very real and significant ways. And as long as that is true, you can't be non-political or apolitical. You have to have an investment in those things. And that's why I wanted to talk about politics and government for a long time on my podcast, because I really didn't know which way to take the episode. And that's why it's been up until season four that I'm finally tackling this topic. But... I just was kind of getting frustrated with the argument that I could be non-political or apolitical and completely remove myself from the political process and then that's a acceptable position to be in. And I just don't think it is um, because I think everyone's got an investment. And even if you personally don't have an investment in politics or you think you don't, I mean, I would argue that you do, But even let's say I concede to you that you feel that you do not have an investment in politics, that politics and government do not affect you. I would counter that by saying, even if it doesn't affect you personally, it affects people around you. And I would go back to my last episode where I mentioned John Rawls, the political theorist and philosopher who talked about the veil of ignorance and how decision makers at the very top, those that hold privilege and power, should be making decisions blindly in the interest, not of themselves, but of everyone. And that in making decisions that are in the best interest for everyone, you end up making the best decision for yourself. And I would argue in the same way to somebody, okay, so just because you don't wanna be political, doesn't mean that politics doesn't affect the people around you and since it affects the people around you therefore you need to be invested in politics for the good of other people so i would counter that argument in two ways one it does affect you and you just either don't know it or you're ignoring that it affects you or you're just deluding yourself into thinking it doesn't affect you or the second argument which is even if it doesn't affect you it affects other people and for the betterment of society you need to be involved in politics So laying out my philosophical defense for everybody being involved in politics, we can move forward into the importance of developing a politic, how that interacts with your role in the government, and how we can move forward into actually shaping the government for how we want it to function instead of it just functioning for the few and the powerful and the privileged. Now, of course, from the onset, if you didn't know, I'm a United States citizen and I'm a resident of the state of Georgia. 
So I'm going to be speaking purely out of a United States political landscape and foundation and framework because I can't speak to other roles of government all over the world or other forms of government all over the world. And so if you are from another country and you have no care in the world about United States politics and its functioning and its framework and my opinions on that, I totally understand. Go ahead and just shut this off and move on to my other episodes. Um, I'm not going to hold it against you. But if you are interested or you just want to listen, then let me get into it. First, I would say that the way that the government is functioning right now in the United States as it is currently is irreputably broken. But I do not squarely blame that brokenness just on the founding of the country. And a lot of people do. A lot of people think that our current form of government in the United States is kind of fruit from a rotted tree. That our form of government was never perfect to begin with. And it was corrupt from the beginning, from the get-go. And it's just birthed more corruption, and more rottenness. While I don't think that our government was perfect at its founding, and it certainly isn't perfect today, and it's never been perfect at any time in history, I don't think it was purely corrupt to the core. Now, were there things that were wrong at the time of the founding? Of course there were. There were irrehensible sins an irrehensible harm and immoral things that were going on at the founding of the country. For example, slavery existed. The genocide of indigenous people existed. Women as second-class citizens existed. There was a lot of irreparable harm and immense injustice and immorality that was happening before and on the onset of the founding of the United States of America. That's indisputable, okay? You cannot dispute that slavery existed, that women were second-class citizens, and that indigenous people were killed in mass, or that genocide occurred because of the colonizing of the lands that we call the United States. Those things happened. And we have to face those things. And we can't pretend that it didn't happen. And we can't pretend that we don't have any kind of complicity in it today. And we need to be working toward righting the wrongs of the sins of those tragedies that have happened. And how we want to discuss that is going to have to be up to all of us. But we're already having the discussions. And there are a lot of people well more astute well more competent, well more educated about these things than I am. So I'm not going to get into topics like what we need to do to right the wrongs for indigenous people, what we need to do to right the wrongs for uh, people of African descent. I don't. We don't need to talk about righting the wrongs for um, the misogyny that occurred. And when I mean that we don't need to talk about them is we don't need to talk about them here because I'm not 
the most equipped to talk about all those things. But we need to talk about all those things as a country, as a society. We need to continue to grapple with these things. We cannot pretend that they didn't exist and we can't pretend to sweep it under the rug and whitewash it in our history books. And that's the first thing that this leads me to is I am seeing a disturbing trend in public education, in private education, homeschool education, any kind of form of education in the United States, which is a continued whitewashing of history. I talk about this a little bit in my episode um, with Brittany in season two in on uh, racism and whiteness. So if you want to go listen to that episode, it's amazing. Brittany was a former educator extremely brilliant going to her social media alone which you can find all her details in the episode description on the season two episode on racism and whiteness it's it's brilliant because she's a educator she knows her stuff and she has really good content on her social media um that talks about a lot of this but there's been a whitewashing and continued whitewashing in our history and it's happening in our history books. And one of the things that I've seen recently in the news is that there are certain school districts in the United States that want to continue to whitewash history books by not even talking about prolific people in history that happen to be ethnic minorities. And for example, there was this one school district in the elementary school history books that refused to mention Martin Luther King Jr., who is a seminal figure in history, and they decide to completely ignore that, which is beyond the pale to me, that you can ignore Martin Luther King Jr. and his role in the civil rights movement in seeking equal protection equal justice, and equal status for black people in the United States. So to completely to ignore that and suppress that part of history is unfathomable, but it's happening. And that's why we need to continue to speak out and talk about it, because we can no longer be silent about the sins that are happening when it comes to the whitewashing of history. And I can personally speak a little bit into my background. So from sixth grade to 12th grade, I went to fundamentalist Christian schools. And the curriculum that I used in those fundamentalist Christian schools came from two primary institutions. Uh, Bob Jones University, which is an independent fundamentalist Baptist Christian school in South Carolina, and Pensacola Christian College, which is an independent fundamentalist Baptist Christian school in Pensacola, Florida. And those two fundamentalist institutions have printing presses. One's BJU Press, the Bob Jones one, and then the Pensacola one is called Abeka. And if you look at their curriculum in their history books, you will see a blatant whitewashing and a blatant Christofascist, fascist, excuse me, interpretation of history in these books and one of the examples that i always think of is the continued whitewashing of even martin luther king jr so even if 
people are mentioning Martin Luther King Jr. and they're mentioning the civil rights movement, they will pick and choose things that are palatable to white people to make white people feel good about this person named Martin Luther King Jr., but they will not wrestle or be exposed to the things that maybe make them uncomfortable. Another example is how people will just look at the Black Panther movement during the Civil Rights Movement as a purely evil movement that was seeking to destroy white people was the way that I kind of had learned about the Black Panther Party, right? But then when I actually did my research and looked into the Black Panther Party, they were trying to do a lot of things that were good for their community because the government and people had failed to provide basic needs for the black communities. And they were allowing certain areas to grow more and more poor because opportunity was not provided to them because opportunity was stolen from them because of segregation. And the Black Panther Party was trying to expose these things and we're trying to say, look, if you're not going to listen to us, we're going to have to take action, bold, swift action in order to make our needs heard, in order to make our voices heard. And we grow uncomfortable with that. And I know that as a white person, you know, I've been uncomfortable many times listening to perspectives from black and indigenous people of color and other ethnic minorities about the injustices that white people have brought onto ethnic minorities throughout the course of human history. And as a white person, of course, how can you not be uncomfortable? But we can't immediately just skirt around or avoid or pretend that we have no investment in this or that we can absolve ourselves from this. Because even though we might not have firsthand perpetuated the injustice, as a race, we are complicit historically for everything. And we need to at least reconcile, reconcile that by acknowledging and by assessing and by proposing interventions to create justice and fairness and equality under the law. And now you might be saying, well, you know, the civil rights movement happened and we're not living in Jim Crow anymore and we don't have segregation and we don't have slavery. You know, we don't have a lot of these things that white people were complicit in doing to um, oppress and marginalize ethnic minorities. And I would say, okay, because those things don't explicitly exist anymore doesn't mean they don't implicitly ex exist. And that's the other thing that we have to talk about is this implicitity. How can we still take responsibility if we can never claim responsibility in the first place? Meaning, if I know that there's injustice in the world, whatever kind of injustice it is. If I keep on going, well, I have nothing to do with this because I didn't start whatever the injustice was, then I'm not really taking on my responsibility as a person that has privilege to be able to go, okay, just because I didn't have any direct responsibility in this doesn't mean that I don't have any responsibility, period. I still have responsibility to try to seek justice, seek fairness, and seek equality for all people. And I think that's what John Rawls was getting at with this political philosophy. 
which is just because you might not be affected by something doesn't mean that we can absolve ourselves from responsibility in seeking justice and fairness for all people. It's our duty to be able to seek those things. And that leads me to government. Now, a lot of times we feel powerless, utterly powerless when it comes to making our voices known in the government, especially on the federal level. Now, a lot of times on the local level, on the state level, we might feel a little bit more empowered because, well, those are smaller, smaller forms of government. They're more directly connected to us. They affect us in more real and everyday ways. And that the mechanisms for being able to make our voices heard might be more easier than on the federal level. But one of the things that I've learned recently, and I've learned before, is that there are multiple tools and multiple ways to make our voices heard in government. And that we are not completely powerless to change things, but that we can through action and through organization and through conviction change the course of things in our history. The thing is, humans like me and you have done this throughout the course of human history. Humans that had conviction and a passion to be able to take up for a cause have done it. And yes, they've done it with great sacrifice and they've done it at great harm and peril at times, but they've done it and they've changed the course of human history. We can go back to the civil rights movement as an example. People sacrificed their physical health, emotional health, familial health, spiritual health, and all other kinds of health to be able to stand up for what was right. And change happened not just because the government in some vacuum decided to do something altruistic and go, oh, you know what, we should give equal rights to black people. No, it was because black people and white allies but really primarily black people standing up and saying, this is wrong, we will no longer be oppressed, we will make our voices heard, and if we have to completely disrupt everything that's going on in order to make it happen, we will do it. And they did it, and change happened. Now, are we at the finish line for equality? Definitely not. But have there been great strides? I believe there have been. But the civil rights movement would have never happened if it wasn't for the conviction of people standing up for their rights, standing up for their humanity and their dignity and their worth. And that's what we have to continue to do. We see the civil rights movement take place. We see the LGBTQ movement take place. We see the feminist movement take place. We see um, religious minority movements take place. We've seen all sorts of different movements take place in order to stand up for equality and justice and fairness and all other good virtues that we need to be convicted of and fight for. All of these things happen because of organization and conviction an organizing of people for a collective good, for a collective purpose, a unified purpose can make great change and we can do that as well we can make our voices heard on social media we can make our voices heard through 
writing letters to our representatives. We can make our voices heard from doing protest and from doing town hall meetings. There are so many different ways that we can interject ourselves into the political and governmental landscape in order to see change happen. But we have to move beyond this nihilistic attitude of there's nothing I can do, I'm completely powerless, and move into a different attitude of cautious optimism, which is, look, I know that you know just because I say something, it doesn't mean it's going to change, but I need to say something or else nothing is going to change. And so having that attitude gets us a step in the right direction, moving toward justice. And that's what our whole entire heartbeat should be, honestly. As humans, our heartbeat should be for justice and for equal rights. And if you want to listen to a lot of how I articulate these particular things on social justice and human rights, go back to the last episode. But I wanted to say that, you know, none of this is easy, and I understand. But as I've gotten older, one thing I've learned is that nothing is going to change with me just sitting idly by and doing nothing. I think a lot of people in power, especially those that are corrupt, bank on people sitting by and doing nothing. They thrive off of that. The indifference and the apathy are tools for the oppressor to continue to oppress. When the oppressed stand up and fight back, that's when the oppressor gets scared. And yes, they'll respond through fight and they'll respond through violence. But the oppressed have more power whenever they take the power away from the oppressor. And one way you do that is by standing up. A lot of change has happened because of this standing up principle of just speaking out and standing up. One thing I also would like to say is that social media is a very powerful tool. And one of the powerful subsets of tools that are used in social media is the power of shame. Shame, (laughs) you know, you can look at shame in a lot of different ways. Obviously, Brene Brown, who's a researcher and a social worker, is kind of the expert on shame. So if you want to, like, actually learn a lot about shame from an an internal perspective, meaning, like, how do we rid ourselves of, of shame, then you can go study her. But when we're thinking about politics and government, one of the weapons, if you will, that you can use that's pretty effective is shame. Shaming people is blunt. It is direct. It is brash, but it is effective to an extent especially people that are very hard-headed and very stuck in their ways. They need to be shamed in order to be willing to change. And I know this happened to me just with my religious beliefs, but it's also happened to me about my political beliefs and other beliefs as well that were problematic and people called me out on it. And whenever I was really stubborn about it, I remember that one of the top most effective tools for me to be able to open up my mind and to ponder on things that I didn't want to ponder on before was when somebody shamed me. 
and we could argue whether somebody shaming me is morally right or not, but I'm not talking about whether it's something morally right or not. I'm talking about if something is effective. So I'm talking about just pragmatism here and pragmatically shame is a powerful tool. And we've seen it work very well, especially on social media, when you've gathered thousands and tens of thousands and hundreds of thousands and possibly millions of people to shame someone or something, things change dramatically in a heartbeat. People's attitudes turn on a dime. Things that might have been considered to be passed or trying to be pushed through different mechanisms of government might be stall, uh, might be stopped or might be thwarted. So shame is a very powerful tool, but also conviction and witness is a powerful tool. And one of the things that I've also learned recently is the power of storytelling. Telling your personal story is a very powerful tool. I remember listening to this Republican lawmaker who voted to, um, on, the, on a state level, voted to enact one of the most restrictive abortion bills in the country after the overturning of Roe versus Wade. And I remember after that vote, sometime after that, he started getting calls, letters, emails, people reaching out on social media and started reading all the stories, started reading all the criticisms, started reading all of the negativity of his decision to enact uh, abortion restrictions and i remember that he in a future meeting said in public on public record that he was wrong for voting to restrict abortion because he had not considered the stories of the people who were directly affected by it and this goes back once again to my principle that I really, a lot of my political theory and a lot of my political philosophy and a lot of my values and my beliefs when it comes to politics and government goes right back to John Rawls and how we should be looking to vote and to create policy, to propose change, to fight for movements for the betterment of all people and not just the few. And that's the kind of politics and government that we need to have are people that are willing to fight for everybody, but especially and most importantly, fight for those who are marginalized and oppressed on racial levels, on socioeconomic levels, on every kind of level. We need to fight for those who are the most powerless and feel like they don't have a voice. What can we all do in order to make our country better? It's we all need to stand up and speak up and to speak out for those who are most in need. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of Some Random Thoughts. I really appreciate your listening and your support. And please, if you can, leave a review for me wherever you listen to your podcast. It would help me greatly. And also reach out and let me know what you think of this episode and past episodes. I would love to hear your opinions and remember your thoughts could make it into a future episode. You can reach out to me on Twitter and Instagram at Ryan Wolkowski, or you can reach out to me on my website at www.ryanwolkowski.com. All my information will be in the show notes. Once again, thank you so much for listening. And remember, you have one life, make the most of it, and we'll see you next time. Mm-hmm.